Hello and welcome to the Real Maxime podcast. I'm Maxime, your host. I'm an economist, former tech entrepreneur, hedge fund founder, and private investor. Several years ago, Ernst & Young launched the Women Athletes Business Network to help top women athletes transition from competitive sports into successful careers in business and leadership. They found that 94% of C-suite women played sports. Their hypothesis was correct. The skills and experience gained through sports translated to marketable leadership skills. Athletes see projects through completion. They have an uncanny ability to motivate themselves and others, and they know how to collaborate and work as a team. Morgan McKinney, Chief Executive Officer of the Providence Foundation, embodies these traits. An avid soccer fan and player, she grew up in internationally diverse Washington, D.C. After majoring in computer science at Amherst, Morgan got her first break on Wall Street. She cut her teeth as a trading assistant for Martin Buzzy Schwartz, the famed and notoriously demanding Wall Street trader. As a banking executive, Morgan quickly grew to become an expert in optimizing and growing core banking businesses by harnessing the benefits of digital transformation on a global stage. During her career at Citi, which included long stints abroad, she was primarily focused on institutional and consumer payments innovation globally, which led her to her role as Chief Operating Officer for Citi's largest division, Global Consumer Banking. Morgan joined Providence as CEO in 2022 to lead the expansion of the Cosmos-based blockchain and to enable financial institutions globally to lower intermediation costs, improve liquidity, reduce risk, and enable new product development. Today, Provenance is leveraged by more than 60 financial institutions, including Apollo Global, Figure, and Guaranteed Rate, and has supported over $12 billion in transactions. A blockchain practitioner, Morgan is passionate about enabling the digital economy, harnessing emerging technology for business value, and democratizing access to financial services to support economic growth. Morgan received a BA in computer science from Amherst College and an MBA from Harvard Business School. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I joke I'm a good skier for not being born in Austria, but I was actually born in Colorado. But I really grew up in the D.C. area, Arlington, Virginia, to a military family. So I think that's where I got my global wanderlust from and the desire for public service at some point here in my career. But D.C. is a diverse part of the U.S. And you know, for instance, my public high school had a quarter white, a quarter Hispanic, a whole quarter Asian, a quarter black. My kindergarten had a whole bunch of countries, you know, folks from around the world. So it was a neat place to grow up. So growing up in that environment, do you feel like you developed a certain sense of adaptability to a, a variety of different cultures and viewpoints? Yeah, absolutely. I had friends who were their parents worked at NGOs or ambassadors playing soccer, you know. My passions growing up and always have been sports. I'm not uh, artistically particularly gifted, but athletically, I played a ton of soccer. Soccer is obviously an international sport. No matter where you turn up in the world, you can always find a game. And so, yeah, absolutely. I think some of that adaptability came through early on that way. And then living around the world. So I lived a decade abroad, lived in Asia for four years, lived in London, but focused on Europe, Middle East and Africa, which was a 55 market territory for me at City. So yeah, definitely uh, also living abroad during my career built up a lot of that adaptability. Yeah, that's great. And I can empathize and also relate. I was an oil brat. My father ran these large IT infrastructures for oil rigs. And so we spent a lot of time in the Middle East and Scandinavia and Northern Europe. And one of the things I got from that, and I was wondering, it's probably the same for you, is A, a little bit of a wandering, traveling bug, wanting to constantly move and discover new frontiers and new parts of the world. 
And the other is an ability to really get back on your feet pretty quickly and rebuild community and rebuild friendships and relationships wherever I go. So I would assume this is probably fairly similar with your own upbringing. Absolutely. And I think I learned from my dad, he landed, as I recalled it growing up in every country in the world. So I heard all about his adventures and my parents moved around a ton before. So I wasn't a quote army brat. My parents got all their moves before they settled down in DC, but I heard a lot from them and the curiosity certainly. And it's a big world out there, both literally and figuratively, a lot of lives to lead. And I absolutely, going to business school, I went to very international business school, HBS. So I have friends, thankfully, in pretty much every port of the world. So I always stay in touch with them. And then, yeah, as I move, I'm newbie to California. I joke I'm finally chill enough to live on the West Coast of the U.S. So I'm only a year in. And yeah, it takes setting up shop, building community. Absolutely. So it's something I take energy from. It's great to hear. And I also think a sense of diversity as well, which is one of the things that I find probably not as much gender. Would love to see more women in crypto and Web3 but certainly incredibly diverse from an ethnicity standpoint, from nationalities. I mean, you go to a consensus or an East Denver and you see very clearly, this is an international movement. This is an international effort with all the different facets and different angles and viewpoints. So I think it makes it a a very rich community. What um, type of studies did you gravitate towards in college? Well, coming from a family of chemists, I gravitated towards chemistry, and that was my major until I hit orgo, which was a big bomb. <laughs> so, And I also worked in a physical chemistry lab at Amherst College in, I think in my 10th, when I was my second year at college. And I knew I didn't want to work in a lab as much as I um, respect all the amazing work coming out from scientists around the world. So I shifted gears and majored in computer science, which at Amherst, which is a tiny liberal arts school with about 400 grads per year and no grad program, it's really all about critical thinking and writing. And in computer science, it's obviously very math-based, so very logic-oriented. But really, I took a broad curriculum at Amherst. You could take anything you wanted. And I really kept it trying to get from all spaces, obviously sciences and a lot of sciences, but then economics, political science, et cetera. So But I think I knew in college for some reason, and I was bucking the trend at Amherst, that I wanted to go see how the markets worked and see, go into business life, the business application of technology. But there weren't that many folks at Amherst. You know, they were doctors, writers, uh, lots of professors. And so I pounded the pavement on Wall Street to get a job. I had no connections and nothing turned up. But I started at Capital One Financial, which at the time was a credit card company, very innovative. And it was really using technology for its edge. So it was a great first job. But then three months into my first job in Richmond, Virginia, a trader called and asked me to move down and work for him. And that was my break on Wall Street. So moved down to Florida, never been to Florida. And I was his apprentice and traded a small book for him, helped him on his derivatives trades. So it was my start on Wall Street. That's amazing. What kind of asset class? Was it just across asset classes or were there specific derivatives that you traded? Yeah, he was a very gifted trader. That was something. His name is Buzzy Schwartz. And I lasted longer than anybody working for him, which was a sign of my resiliency. And he was very good to me and taught me all about the markets. He traded at the time exchange traded derivatives on the Merck. So he was trading mainly S&P 500 derivatives. And he was an incredible trader. I learned a lot. I helped write part of his book. He wrote a book, Pitbull Lessons from Wall Street's Champion Day Trader. This was way before day traders. 
existed really and described his personality. He was a tough guy, very talented. And then I had a book of equities that I traded, U.S. public equities he gave me to trade. That is fascinating. What were the key learnings from that experience? Hard work, I'd say. He worked harder than any very successful person. He felt all the numbers by hand. Again, this is kind of back in the day. He used a lot of charts. The trend is your friend. Sounds very basic. I learned that no matter how smart you are, it's hard to make money trading. So for everybody that does do that, it's hard work. And I really learned how capital markets worked. And that gave me my next job, which was working for British Futures and Options Exchange, which at the time was the world's second largest derivatives exchange. It was called Life at the time. It's been since acquired, London International Financial Futures and Options Exchange. And I learned about hubris at a very young age, at about 23 years old, because they were the second largest exchange. And an upstart electronic exchange, quote, stole their biggest product, which was the German Bund Future, and moved the open interest, meaning moved the trading from life to this, to Eurex, Deutsche Borsa. And that was my lesson in ignoring technology. Ignore technology at your peril, because often it can do it better than the old school way, which in futures land is the pits, with uh, traders in a pit representing their buyers and exchanging via hand signals, ultimately, is what happens in the pits back in the day. And so throughout that time, you're learning a lot about the markets. And I hear a little bit less of those foundational elements of computer science, which you obviously have come back to as an enabler for the next generation or what we anticipate to be the next generation of infrastructure that powers financial markets. Did you rekindle recently or did you keep in touch with what was going on in the technology world? Yeah, well, the whole thread was always tech for business value. So I was sort of Marty slash Buzzy's computer whiz, right? Managing as all his systems, et cetera, and data sources. And I think that TechBent led me when I started working at City in my summer during business school, thanks to a section mate who didn't want the job. So here I was at City. I spent 18 years at City, which was 15 years longer than I planned. But I gravitated at City towards its transaction banking business, which is really think of it as the pipes that moves the money on behalf of all the bank's customers, the large Fortune 500 companies, governments, businesses. And so transaction banking is the ops and tech part of finance because it really is the underlying pipes. It's plugged into all the clearing systems around the world, meaning how things settle, various financial assets settle. So And I gravitated towards innovation roles in that business. And that's where I actually implemented blockchain twice when I was at Citi, um, one in 1516 with NASDAQ and one in 2020 and 2021 with Alibaba and Ant. So yeah, even Capital One was a tech innovator. It was using technology for competitive edge. So I'd say that theme was persistent throughout, but it was always the business side of the tech. So you wouldn't necessarily go and like even out of interest on I'm just going to call it like maybe a Saturday afternoon where you have nothing else to do and you're going to go inside a GitHub and look at how the code's implemented or look at architectural blueprints or was it always more from a higher view standpoint and trying to understand all the enablement points, the fundamental business architecture as to how the technology actually solves or in this case, as we'll talk about provenance, starts disintermediating an entire industry. Yeah, definitely more the latter, meaning, and I'm a really, my mantra is digital done right delights. It's hard to do digital right, right? There's a lot of ways to make sure that's true, but analog doesn't scale. You can't wow your customer in general without bringing in significant tech from 
obviously your front end and all of financial services the last decade has been the consumer app layer has been vastly improved, right? Even your banking payments, right? Forget fintech payments and wallets, et cetera, but uh, from your mobile. But the middle and back is where you actually make things sing. And if you don't get the middle and back office right, and I did a lot of digital transformation at City, things fall on the floor after that glossy front end. And so you really yeah, have to apply all methods to, so even AI. When I took a sabbatical from City, I took competing in the age of AI back at business school and competing in the age of platforms. What are the next gen platforms uh, that are going to really enable massive open innovation and tokenomics and decentralized systems allows you to reward? It's a really stakeholder driven platform where everybody participating in whatever way they're participating can be rewarded, unlike existing platform 1.0s today, where it's really the platform owner, right, who's largely centralized is capturing most of the economics for their shareholders. True. Absolutely. Were there any important seminal books that you read throughout that part of your career that, that have stayed with you as core principles that you think you know, are inherent to the way you think or have helped you think about how to become a business leader? It's interesting. The longer in the tooth you get, I always go back to my business school reunions every five years and same thing at college. In the business school, you, we did all these case studies about the terrible protagonist and you know why they weren't making good business decisions. And so really all my learnings, off, most of them are on the job through amazing mentors, bosses, colleagues. So I think, how do you innovate with customers? I deepened extraordinarily at City. I ran City's Innovation Lab that they had in Singapore as part of my role when I was in Asia. And how do you innovate with customers? Because innovation, if you think about it, has always been, and this isn't answering your book question, Maxime, sorry, because I'm like quite busy <laughs> to read books. So I usually take it from travel and experience or my work experience. So, But I learned a lot about the testing and learning life cycle of innovation, and it's an art and a science. So I, I really built up a lot of my innovation competencies through all of my work experiences. How do you do disruptive innovation? Yeah. And I figure at some point a book might be written about what you're doing now, truthfully. No, really. I mean, it's fascinating. So how do you first get acquainted with Mike Cagney and figure and everything that he's doing at the time? And how do you get to be part of the selection process to drive this initiative? Well, the interesting answer perhaps for your listeners is it won on entirely on its own merits. I heard about this role through a headhunter that I had never met, heard of, or known. It was about a blockchain I had never heard of and started by a founder that I didn't know, right? I don't know. I didn't know Mike Cagney and I didn't know June. Didn't really know anyone in this ecosystem. So I think it won on its own merits through exceptional kind of due diligence. I've never kind of looked harder at a job in terms of speaking with a range of people. But I left City in October of 2021 after an amazing sabbatical. So my last role was couldn't have gotten any better, but I got to work for Jane Fraser as her chief operating officer of consumer business when she was running that part of the business before she became CEO. And that's the other half of City, right? I'd spent most of my 18 years at City focused on helping institutions operate globally. And the sabbatical, besides some fun travel, in 2021 and these business classes I took, I really spent the time on the future of finance. And without a big operating job to take up a ton of time, I could touch and feel everything in DeFi. I could touch and feel everything in crypto and use it myself, that kind of thing. 
and felt that the time was right for me to help lead this future about traditional finance harnessing really in a mainstream way, blockchain, digital money, and digital assets. I had thought though that it was too early to pick a winner. So October 2021, I left, I was doing advisory roles to see how each layer of this cake was going to bake. So digital assets, I was working for Bain as an expert advisor. They have a big practice focused on how to use digital assets. Digital money, I was working at Center focused on USDC, which is most of your listeners might have heard of that. It's a stable coin. And I was working on a digital identity project, digital security advisory role, and networks and chain. Think of those as the five-layer cake. And I decided I would see how each layer was evolving, some of the challenges, and then in 2023, be able to pick a winner. And of course, I was two months into that plan and the Providence rule came up and I started March of 2022. So long-winded answer to your question. So when you talk about due diligence on your part, what were you particularly focused on? Talk about trying to decipher the emergence of a winner, but really, how did you assess the various stakeholders in the market and how aligned they were to make this a successful endeavor? Yeah, I mean, having implemented blockchain twice successfully at City in fifteen sixteen, I mean, we were at really primitive. There were two things you might know about or use, Bitcoin and blockchain, like the word. So it was so early days. And that was with NASDAQ. Then in 2019 and 2020 with Alibaba and Ant, Ant had a very developed blockchain, private blockchain that we used, and we did a lot of blockchain orchestration with them. And the solutions processing billions and billions and billions of dollars of cross-border payments. And I'm told other banks have come into the solution. So it's been highly successful. Each of those projects were a year and a half of my life. And that was in addition to the day job, right? So that's just with one organization basically, or two, right? In the case of Alibaba and Ant, but kind of connected. So most of my due diligence was around readiness and what were the variables that would make this successful. And I do feel there were some number of unique variables. One, Mike and June, when they set up Provenance, knew that banks wouldn't be first in to adopt a blockchain. And so they built Figure to showcase the value of building a business on blockchain. And Figure and Series D was worth $3.2 billion in a few years. They have a great client franchise. They're doing, they've focused on highly intermediated verticals. So lending vertical, mortgages and home equity lines of credit. Their marketplace vertical, which focuses on private market securities and private assets like private funds. And then they have a payments vertical. And so for disruptive innovation, showcasing the way with a real operating business with real customers is very, very powerful because it demonstrates things like When you do mortgages on chain, you can save over 120 basis points. And that study was done when interest rates were low between the issuance, servicing, financing, and securitization as an example. So you can demonstrate the benefits because blockchain, you need to walk before you run and you need, it's not academic, you have to implement. (laughs) And then you understand and gain more in-depth assessment of the value it's bringing. So I think that was important. It had something called USDF, Bank Minted Tokenized Deposits. This is enabling banks to participate in the digital economy. Banks have 70% of the funds, the money supply, and they have to be a very important player is our view. And so the fact that there was USDF consortium, it's undergoing regulatory approval as we speak, but it's a collaborative coin issued by the consortium members 
for acceptance by the other members to credit their customers in real time. And it's already in your wallet kind of thing. So I thought that was really creative. There's over 60 financial firms that have engaged with the chain. That kind of usage of both of originator and buyers of assets is notable. Yeah, there were many unique things about the setup of Providence and the fact that we're proudly public with permissions. I've implemented with partners two private chains. In my view, there's not enough juice to have an entirely private, dedicated, private and permissioned blockchain. It's too hard to implement blockchain already. And if it's private and permissioned, it doesn't allow open innovation and open access. I think there's a lot of ways we, and we do control things like code changes are approved by governance. If you're the asset originator, you can dictate who can have access to that asset, et cetera. So there's a lot of embedded permissioning data privacy. So personally identifiable information is not on-chain. So we're designed, we're purpose-built for financial services, but we're proudly public. And that means anyone can come build, anyone can start using, anyone can be a validator. And you we're focused on being proudly public with standards and governance, given our focus is supporting regulated financial services players. So Nobody's trodden that path, but I do view that's the long road. That's where things will get, go because of the, all the, the benefits I cited. So the choice to be on Cosmos, it, Provenance was originally built on Hyperledger. It was moved into Cosmos of May of 2021. Cosmos, for your listeners, is think of it as the internet of blockchains. It allows blockchains to be easily stood up for a purpose-built reason. So we're purpose-built for financial services. Others are built for gaming collectibles, et cetera. But there's embedded interoperability, meaning there's an embedded way to talk to other chains. And that's an important feature of this next gen of platforms as well. So there's a lot of neat things going on in the Cosmos ecosystem. So that was a very wise decision that predated my time, but in my view is an incredible asset. Thank you very much for this very extensive answer, because as you were going through the due diligence checklist, right, literally right now, step by step, you are essentially starting, and rightfully so, to build the case for Providence and the way it's implemented and its genesis, right? Ranging from how the founders initially thought of it and how they thought of showcasing it. To your point, adoption is going to take time. All the way to the last point you made, which is purpose-built using an infrastructure that is being conceived to be highly modular and interoperable which is, I think, going to be a significant driver on a going forward basis. And Cosmos certainly has taken the lead. There'll be other initiatives. But when we think about two things, one is interoperability and more standards in the way different blockchains interact with one another. And being able to bridge and interoperate liquidity and financial primitives lower down the stack is very important. And having these purpose-built implementations, not every vertical is the same, right? And so the ability to bring forward, you know, a blockchain or a blockchain ecosystem that has been thought through by seasoned professionals, seasoned executives who know how the financial plumbing of the world functions is critical. And I think that's a significant differentiator. On a sort of professional slash personal basis, what were your core sort of desires or outcomes from joining this effort? What would you like to see in a few years when you look back and look at this tenure? 
This is, I think, one of the many reasons why I stayed at City for longer than I planned was the problems were complex. And one of my superpowers is solving complex problems. And this is on a whole other scale because this is trying to change fundamentally how financial services is executed. This is the new digital factory of finance. It's a new digital assembly line by natively issuing a mortgage on chain and then doing its downstream financial activities that gets to basically the customer owning that having that mortgage and having it serviced and offlaying the risk right in the financial ecosystem as an example. So changing the factory of finance is no big, no small undertaking, especially given obviously all of finance is really highly intermediated today, right? You ask your bank to do something with your money, you ask your broker to do something with your shares. This is moving control into the hands of the asset owners to basically trade or have those assets move them wherever they want. And that is really disruptive. Um, So I joke my job description is selling frontier technology to traditional financial services firms that disrupts a part of their business, but is better for their customers. So that's a long job title, but it's also a heavy lift. And if you think about each asset class, right, you know, it is unique in its challenges, but it is highly intermediated. And so That's why working with the coalition of the willing and able is important and building this bridge to the future slat by slat, asset class by asset class. So my core desire is to ultimately bring down the cost to serve. I mean, financial services today, and I've worked globally, is really for people who have money, people and businesses. That's because it's expensive to provide and technology lowers cost to serve. If you can bring down that infrastructure cost, the middle and back office cost and time, and capital required, you can actually be able to offer more financial products to a wider range of people that help them save for their kids' education, help them get access to asset classes they never could, higher returning asset classes that they never could access before, and all in this theme of sort of more instant gratification, right, of real-time settlement on-chain kind of thing, et cetera. So, and the asset actually gets moved. It's not a message that it's going to move. So your digital wallet will have a whole bunch of other things. It'll have your identity assets in there. It'll have different financial assets in there. It'll have different forms of dollar in there, ultimately, or other forms of cryptocurrency. So I think, yeah, the world will change significantly. I want to be a responsible leader in supporting that change, ultimately lowering cost to serve. So a transformation agent and playing that in the best possible place that you can with the right resources, which brings me what I'd like to cover now is more of the fundamentals of the operation itself. If we can zoom in a little bit, as the chief executive officer, you have purview over the functioning of a foundation. And I would like to understand for our listeners, how does the foundation function on a daily basis? How does it fund itself? And what is your approach to ensuring that it is fully resourced? Yeah, so... A key part of our balance sheet is hash is our utility token used to pay all fees on chain and for governance, right? So in order to have a voice in governance, you have to own hash and stake that hash to secure the network. And you earn returns based on the overall success of the ecosystem for putting that utility token at risk and to use from the governance side. So we own about 6% of the hash outstanding. So that's an important part. We also have what's called Provenance Blockchain Advisors. It's an advisory capability that helps users and potential users get live faster on the chain, right? This is not a plug and play technology. It's not like you wake up tomorrow and say, oh yeah, I'm going to do all my business on 
on blockchain. So we found through the role of the foundation is to help support and catalyze usage by a wide range of financial services participants, whether you're a young fintech trying to build a better mousetrap or you're a very well-established financial institution. Obviously, Provenance, it's an infrastructure layer to help you do your business better for your customers. So our job at the foundation is to make that as easy as possible to use. And so Provenance Blockchain Advisors charges advisory fees to help on basically getting set up, right? Getting the tech built, the smart contracts designed to meet the business opportunity, et cetera. And there's also a capital side, right? A lot of the companies coming to us want to make sure that these assets can be distributed. So how do you design the asset so that buyers will come in, that kind of thinking? And that's an important part of our cash revenue. Understood. So that's from a financial capital. From the standpoint of the team that you've assembled, can you speak to how you went about crafting that group? Did Were people in place when you were hired? Were you tasked to continue building that executive roster and the layers beneath it? How did you go about building your human capital? Yes, and I was employee number one. So that's great. So I got to build out the team. We have an amazing team. I'm really just absolutely delighted. And it was finding unicorns, right? We are still early days. So how do you find somebody that knows traditional financial services, how the plumbing works, as you called it, but also knows enough about blockchain and how it can help? There aren't actually that many people out there that, where that is true. It's a pretty narrow band of folks. Obviously, that's growing, which is great, and that's important. So t- the right talent coming in, I think, is important. So we have a great business developer, Anthony Morrow, who comes from a long time at Bank of New York Mellon. Bank of New York Mellon touches 20% of the world's investable assets, and he built out the ADR program there in security service business. And he was at a fintech focused in real estate space after that. So he has that agility. We have an amazing CMO who was most recently the CMO of Securitize. He also worked at BlackRock, uh, Franklin Templeton, Travelocity, Electronic Arts. So he has amazing TradFi, traditional financial services, as well as consumer marketing, plus blockchain land with his time at Securitize. That's Dan Garcia. We have an amazing head of developer ecosystem who ran Acumen's a grant program. So Joshua Maddox is his name. He runs our hash grants program to encourage long-term partnership and development. But he also worked at the largest token on Solana, Kin, as an example, and worked at Jam, which is entertainment NFT. We also have a head of onboarding and adoption of blockchain solutions engineer, AJ Webb, who, again, we can't send institutions to say, here you go, just plug in. So we need the genius bar equivalent to help institutions adopt from a technical point of view. So that's AJ's role. And we have a great set of protocol engineers. So Ira Miller runs our protocol team. He's putting through, again, through community governance approval, uh, some amazing features that further differentiate us for financial services. So things like decentralized sanctions capability or anti-dusting program where you have to accept assets or you can accept assets coming into your wallet. As an example, the groups function, which allows authorization of digital assets out of an address in an enterprise context, right? So because you don't want one person controlling all of the assets for specific enterprise, as an example. So, and he has an amazing team of protocol engineers that work uh, for him. So the team, those are the broads. So we have the business front end and then great engineering team. And so you said you were employee number one of the effort. How long did it take you to assemble at least a sustainable kernel, a foundational kernel for your team? I started this job on March 1st. It took really through 
July, August, September is when the talent all came in and when I was able to identify the right folks. So yeah, it takes time. I've generally building new muscles. I've generally uh, inherited good teams and worked to make them great. That's sort of how my career has evolved. And this time it was major build mode, which has been interesting and exciting. And because the human talent on this thing is so important. There's humans behind the machines, right? It's a decentralized platform, but it's really always about the people. And we need collaboration PhDs at the foundation, right? This is collaboration on a whole other magnitude. This isn't partnering with the department next door or like one entity. This is like a massive range of stakeholders to connect with, inspire, engage, support, et cetera. So yeah, it's quite a unique set of skills. Hopefully growing though, as we build out blockchain capability. No, absolutely. And even that, what you describe is roughly a six-month period, which in order to assemble a world-class team is a pretty brief window. So it seems like you executed quite well. I was curious as to how the dialogue and the conversations started shifting throughout 2022 as not only were we undergoing probably one of financial markets and the entire history of financial markets, one of the toughest duration shocks we've had ever with the Fed catching up on interest rates, driving asset prices primarily downwards for the most part and risk assets certainly, as well as, as treasuries, but also crypto. And crypto as a whole, and I use that term as sort of all-encompassing, it's probably overly simplistic. But there was an element of deleveraging. There was an element of systemic fragility throughout the crypto ecosystem through 2022. So I'm curious as to when you were trying to convince people who had storied, successful, stable careers in the world of TradFi that typically pays people very well, how were you able to convince them to jump ship and join this effort? Well, there's a few things. One is figure illuminating the way as a power user of the chain is really important because we're not selling something that's coming. We're selling something that already is and it already is its size, right? So we have $7.6 billion total locked value on chain of financial assets, real world financial assets, things that your listeners, they've gotten a mortgage, they might've gotten a home equity line of credit, they might've brought a private fund Maybe they've invested in a young company, right? Those are the businesses and assets we have live today on chain. And so that's really important. I think second is it is a unique vision and a unique ecosystem because we're only focused on financial services. We're not doing anything else, right? That's all we're doing every day. And so if people are, are building in the space, definitely we should be speaking with them. And that focus is important because it's a big space, <laughs> you know, given all the asset classes, et cetera. And so I think all of this is, it's believing the vision that this is, if we fast forward a decade's time, a significant number of the world's financial assets will have been issued natively on blockchain and that all of the activities downstream or many of them will be done on blockchain, again, materially reducing cost to serve. Like that itself is a pretty inspiring mission. So I think you have to believe, you know, I took a massive pay cut to take this job. It's really on the longer term upside of being this transformation agent, as you said. and. That's what motivates all of us to do our work. So yeah, I think that was that's the sell. Unique ecosystem focused on a massive transformation. Yeah, no, and that's that's a very worthy mission. And I would say 
I don't even want to say if things actually pan out because they will. It's a matter of who will best harness the opportunity and make the case for the fact that they are what to build on. So as an infrastructure play, obviously, it's a long haul, but the returns that will accrue to that effort are obviously going to be multiples of any individual application or services on top of it. Absolutely. And let me just jump in there, Maxime. Sorry for one last point. I think the the other good news is despite all the, quote, crypto blowups that we saw, and I don't think anyone could have anticipated the last year that we've had, if they could, they would have could retire yesterday kind of thing. But amidst all of that, institutional adoption, financial services adoption, 2022 was the first year of true mainstreaming, right? So you have Bank of New York Mellon launching digital asset custodial capabilities. You have Palo as a large asset manager issuing one of their funds natively on chain, right? These are no longer periphery fringe business use cases by leading participants. It's people who are in their core business participating. So I think that was a notable point in 2022 that will deepen, of course, over time here as more, more of these flagship entities come in and do part of their core business on blockchain. Yes, and I would say if one takes the stand that this is an enabler for ultimately dollarized financial system and really a technology infrastructure with new sets of incentives that drive the functionality, right? The incentives allow for the functionality to exist, right? Those benefits of disintermediation, immutability, the trust that's being validated is only possible because of the right set of incentives. But fundamentally, it is a technology layer that enables dollarized financial services. And so in that sense, I think you're less at the whim of idiosyncratic valuation of crypto-specific assets than you are ultimately anchored to the evolution of how dollarized assets are going to be transacted and trying to make the case for the fact that moving certain parts and ultimately many parts of the financial system and its plumbing onto something like provenance is going to reap substantial benefits at scale. And I want to emphasize at scale because for listeners, what's important to understand is the reason why one would want to embark on this mission is not for the benefits or savings for the few trials and proof of concepts. It's really that when you have a significant migration in terms of dollar notional, these minute savings add up. And in absolute dollar terms, they represent quite a significant improvement at the bottom line of all the participants, right? And those that are currently being penalized or overcharged for participating in a financial system. Now, could you give me, I know we've talked in abstraction as to what you're working on. Can you give me a specific example? I know you guys list the firsts, right? The first this, the first that, that was implemented on Providence. Give me an example of something that, A, you're particularly proud of in terms of it having been the first implementation, but where you think there is tremendous potential. Sure. And I share maybe a couple of use cases. One, I think for any of your listeners who have gone through the pain of getting a mortgage, I don't know, hopefully folks would agree with me that there has to be a better way, right? You're kind of sitting, you know, you want to buy a new house, we have to line up financing and sort of sitting on pins and needles at the very last day, kind of closing kind of thing. And then it still takes a long time for all the paperwork to kind of 
signed, sealed, and delivered, right? So you have a mortgage process that takes 45 days. So what if it took five days and a lot less in a totally digital process, as an example, and cost 50 basis points less than the market rate kind of thing because it was done digitally? So for your listeners, mortgages have what's called an e-note already before blockchain, right? A digital version of the mortgage. And that was, it was under 10% of the way mortgages were issued. So if you can put that e-note with legal protections around and issue that natively on chain, then tying the credit bow, and again, not all your information is on chain, it sits off chain and is, is permissioned by the issuer for buyers of that asset. But if you basically could distribute that asset to the risk takers, the folks with the large balance sheets, which are the large banks, you can basically get a mortgage in five days, not 45, and a highly digitized process in a way that you know, fintechs are rewarded to originate, but then that risk can be efficiently distributed or transferred, right, to larger balance sheet holders. You've really sped up the lending process and made it a lot more efficient, as an example. And home equity lines of credit is another one where in a five-minute digital process, you can get money in your bank account a few days. And it's only a few days because legislation or, you know, regulation requires that, that the consumer sit on that loan, right? But your house price is appreciated. Your kids need to go to college. You don't want to refinance your mortgage because rates have risen. And so you'd like to take out some additional loan on your home. And again, that process is painful for most people. So like, this is what I mean about digital done right delights. Not everything is on chain. The right bits are on chain. You do the digital origination process through thoughtful ways of doing that. But then once you put, you issue that loan on chain, it's so much more efficient. Um, other things like private funds, we have a number of issuers that we're working with that Hamilton Lane has filed for SEC approval for a 1940 Act registered investment fund. That means that's very broadly available, right, with low minimum. And that fund invests in private markets opportunities, right? And that idea is for Mr. and Mrs. Smith to get access, or Joe and Susie, pick your names, to have access to private market investments, which in general are can be higher returning, right, than some of the publicly traded investments, where typically you have to be an accredited investor and have a lot of high net worth to access those types of investment opportunities. But through tokenization, you can provide access to that type of financial asset because it's a lot more operationally easier to issue the asset on chain rather than through a whole bunch of email and paper trail and DocuSign and back and forth, etc., and you can do it in a digital wow process and issue that asset on chain. And then that asset could be traded in the future, right, as an example. So private assets is a killer use case. And the private asset space is bigger than publicly traded markets globally, something like $290 trillion in private assets. It's real estate, venture capital, private equity. And if you can tokenize that, these are operationally in- intensive to issue, manage, meaning like who owns it, and then trade, right? Highly illiquid. You can't trade out of it. So if you could issue those assets as a token, you can make it a lot more efficient, offer it to more people, again, appropriate folks, meeting regulation, and then trade it, whereas you couldn't before. So these are maybe hopefully some specific illustrations. No, and they're incredibly relevant because if you take, for example, the world of the large private equity giants that have now become like the Apollos of the world, that have become these behemoths spanning across private equity, private credit. One of the constituents that they really haven't tapped into is the retail affluent, right? 
And it's a well-known go-to-market pain point for those firms that can really be unlocked through tokenization, right? It's that people always get carried away around this notion that, you know, you need real use cases, you need real pain points. There are real pain points. And there are true business drivers that will ultimately encourage some of those participants to get behind those efforts. Because if they can crack that nut, it will unleash tremendous penetration in completely new swaths of customers that they currently do not have access to. And to your point, in order to invest right now, again, at the retail affluent or high net worth, whether it's you want to access yields. The other day I was speaking to a friend who's coming into substantial amount of money through his work over the years, and we were discussing source of yield. And so if you look at the types of products that are available, there are many, many different hurdles, administrative, settlement issues, and just overall access to, the, to these asset classes, right, that can be immediately solved through what you're doing. Now, that brings me to an interesting question, which is when I look at businesses and I look at investing in businesses in general, right, whether I'm buying a stock, a publicly traded company, or I'm investing in a startup, I like to think about stakeholder alignment. In other words, who wants you to win and who does not want you to win? Like as you sit in your chair as CEO, how do you try to align everyone? Because obviously part of what you're doing is ultimately disintermediating, right? And as someone who's worked on Wall Street at large banks, I traded corporate credit for many years. I know firsthand how much rent extraction exists and how protected certain parts of the corporate bond market businesses are how highly protected at banks, right? Can you enlighten us a little bit on the stakeholder enlightenment? Absolutely. And decentralized systems, by definition, have to be much more stakeholder focused, right? And that's an exciting opportunity. If you think of Platform 1.0s, and platforms are some of the most valuable companies in the world today, right? Whether it's an Apple who's allowing developers to build apps on their platform, which makes your phone way more useful, or you think about an Uber as a platform the more riders, more drivers, more drivers, more riders kind of concept. Basically, we have to think about users first, right? Our brand value is value, meaning this is better, better for your business. So users finding value really important and making that easy. Developers building value-added dApps, so privacy dApps, KYC accreditation dApps, asset perfection capabilities. The stakers, right, who hold hash and basically secure the network and provide governance. We want to be thinking always about governance. And that's a very important component. And the validators are performing consensus, right? And then you think about, obviously, regulators are an important constituent because for this whole new digital factory of finance to work, we certainly need digital money on chain. We have the digital financial assets. But to buy those assets, a financial asset is really either a promise to pay in the future or it's a series of you capture incoming, right? Whether it's dividends or coupons, there's a series of cash flows typically associated with a financial asset. So for this whole thing to sing, we need basically fiat that's digitally issued. So a dollar, euro, sterling by responsible and regulated players. And that's why I mentioned USDF earlier as an example. It's not the only solution, but we need trustworthy money on chain that tracks or is equivalent to fiat, because that's how the world knows value. 
So I'd say there's many different sort of folks we need to win over. I think we're focused on the customers of the incumbents, not always the incumbents themselves, you know, because like I said, this is better for the customers, ultimately more access to credit, more access to yield as you gave an example. So, but we're standing on value that the solution is better. I guess if that helps. So that's truly stakeholder capitalism and tokenomics and decentralized platforms allow you to appropriately award everyone participating, no matter what role they're participating, as opposed to a real shareholder focus where it's really only or largely the shareholders are the dominant lens of thinking. Absolutely. To that point, how do you, again, in your seat, ensure that the governance structure of provenance continues to remain transparent and democratic? Well, the great news is we're proudly public. That ensures the transparency, right? If we were a private and permission chain, you wouldn't be able to see what's going on. So everybody can go to provenance.io, they can click on Explorer Live, and you can see transactions in real time, you can see the validators, um, etc. So I think that's important. And we continue to focus on trying to be a public chain with standards and governance. So we just did a The foundation just announced a validator delegation program. So we're delegating 50% of the hash, the utility token that the foundation owns, to validators who are resilient, that their uptime is over 99%. That's a key criteria in our delegation. And the more hash that gets delegated to validator, the better their economics of doing the consensus. So and next quarter, we've said we are going to only delegate to validators who have been KYC'd, right? encourage all validators to be KYC'd as an example. So that's way that, and we publish the results. They're on our website. We published who got qualitative delegations because they're helping grow the ecosystem and why. So I think we have a bi-weekly community call that anybody can join. We have Discord and Slack, of course, for people to communicate with us. We do a quarterly Friends of Provenance call where we share all the developments in the ecosystem and That's people can go on our website in the learn section and listen to the video. So I think the neat thing about being a public decentralized platform, you know, our code is on GitHub and we have a developer portal, that kind of thing. So we'll keep working at that. And then given our focus of financial services, raising the governance bar, raising the standards bar. So we're early days on that, but continue to work at it. That's great to hear. And I think it's obviously been with new decentralized organizations and understanding decision-making in this new realm, I think it's important to be able to assess the trade-off between decentralization and openness versus the more sort of centralized decision-making that typically is conferred to executives within a corporation. So that's why I was curious to understand how you think about those dynamics and finding the right balance, right? It's not black and white. It's sort of adapting to this new way of operating because with this new way of operating come benefits, right? That wouldn't otherwise be possible. And those are the benefits that you're touting. With regards to the macro environment, last year was a big shock and it affected financial markets broadly and many different asset classes. How is the market different now from when you started? Especially I'm interested in as it relates to the potential for adoption, the potential for endorsement? Um, Have you seen a meaningful slowdown in the decision-making and the adoption or not at all? I mean, we've seen many headlines hit the wire over the past 12 months. There doesn't seem to be 
any shortage of intent, especially coming from some of the bigger names on Wall Street. But I'm curious to as to how that translates day to day, right? And how much more do you have to convince people and also untangle yourself from just quite frankly, the bad press of the FTXs and the three arrows and you know all these scandals that really hit the wire last year? I've never written a reactive blog, but in the wake of FTX, I did. And I called it the end of innocence in crypto and really think FTX marked that. And in my view, it marked the turning of the chapter, right? Away from all the focus and air oxygen dedicated to crypto token trading and lending. That's where a lot of these problems happened and move into the more enduring, sustainable, transformational chapter of blockchain as a technology for business value. I think the tourists have left the building. The adults have entered the room. We're still early days in development. I think the regulatory environment, particularly in the US, is extraordinarily negative. And I think the biggest implication for that is that banks have a very hard time participating using blockchain. And what that means is responsible players who know about risk management and you know have a lot of people in focus on that can't use the tech right now. So I'd say the biggest implication is banks in the US having a hard time using tech, even though many of them, and I think the good news about institutional adoption is good and bad news is it doesn't move quickly, right? So what that means is all of the big firms, financial firms have asset teams, digital asset teams who know about the different chains, know about the capabilities, are assessing and getting agreement on business strategy. So that isn't going away. Uh, I just think the regulatory environment right now makes it a bit harder for banks, but other non-bank financial institutions can and are. Yeah, I don't see any material slowdown amongst non-banks. And I think it also helps reinforce an importance of focusing on the risks, right, to mitigate the risk. This is you know, this is financial services. This is moving assets that matter. This is moving people's retirement savings. It does need responsible regulation in a way that fits the newer tech, right? You can't apply it to the old world. Stuff is not going to fit in the old models. So that needs thoughtful regulation that probably takes the frameworks in place and helps, like we've seen in Europe, as a, for example, some thoughtful regulation. And again, it will take time to iterate the frameworks, but around customer protection, et cetera. Obviously, AML and KYC and sanctions are all very important in the world of financial services. So yes, I do view that most of the activity will come into forms of regulated frameworks. Most of To really be at scale, that will need to happen because these are assets of real value. Yes. And one thing I'd like to, again, reemphasize possibly on your behalf is what you guys do is nothing speculative or exposed to unreasonable amounts of leverage. You are building an ecosystem and the infrastructure and the guidelines to streamline what is currently being done. In other words, you're enabling access and you're doing so in a way that ultimately will streamline a lot of the inefficiencies that cost people to do business in the way they do it currently. So just to make it clear for listeners, we are not here making any reference to a speculative scheme or some reward program that people will speculate and earn yield, you know, as we saw over the last couple of years. To close a little bit the loop, you're obviously probably running around daily building the foundation, building partnerships, leading the technology and the product roadmap. Do you have time to look at what else is happening within the broader Web3 ecosystem? 
in parts that might be consumer driven and other parts that might be to be. Do you have any time and are there any other developments that excite you within the industry? The crazy thing about this space is it's moving so fast. Even if you're in the space, you can't keep up. You know, it's just too big. It is so decentralized. There's a lot of different applications. I would say for folks into gaming, check out gaming and blockchain. I think that's a big application. I do believe that many of your listeners, I'm sure, have heard of NFTs, non-fungible tokens, all kinds of brands. The way you engage with brands will be changed and improved through NFTs in terms of your brand engagement, right? You might have gone to a show, but how do you interact with that actress or singer in new ways, kind of loyalty, other creations that are digital only by certain brands. So these decentralized platforms have so many applications of how it's really is a community of people who are care about a topic, insert topic, right? Collectibles. So I don't have enough time <laughs> to look at everything, but there's a lot of exciting things, obviously, well beyond financial services. I think financial services will be the mainstreaming enterprise application of blockchain. But I think the jury's still out on what the consumer version of mainstreaming. When is an NFT in everybody's wallet around the globe, a billion wallets? And what does that look like? Is it for sports, right? For Manchester United has a billion fans, I think, around the world, etc. So a lot of decentralized platforms let people engage for topics that interest them digitally, right? It's the new country is the digital platform enabled by issuing assets on chain and being able to transact those assets with others. I couldn't agree more. And I second your views on the fact that gaming and certainly, again, blockchain and Web3 as an enabler of new use cases, of new incentive systems that couldn't currently exist or would take a lot more time to reproduce in a standards-based, interoperable, composable way. I think we're going to see tremendous leaps there. I'm also very excited about mobile. It's one thing that I found fascinating, especially given the demographics of the crypto community and developer community, that so little emphasis has been put on that form factor, which as we know in this day and age is one of the main adoption drivers, especially in younger generations, which typically are early adopters and form trends. The next killer app right now is or will be used by literally high school and college kids. It's always like that, right? The same happened with Facebook. It happened with Snapchat, with TikTok, at least on the consumer side. And I think we're also ushering in an era where you will be able to digitize and create scarcity around user-generated content and the intangible value that accrues to those digital assets or digital collectibles. So very much agree with your assessment there. And to your point, it is ever-evolving, hard to keep track. One needs to focus. I certainly try to, in terms of the things that I look at, focus on and lend my expertise to or invest in, because otherwise I think you can go very wrong without having specialized expertise. And similarly, I think we could speak for many more hours on the topic. It's been a pleasure having you on the podcast. Certainly, you are a leading foundation and you as a leader are spearheading, I think, a very necessary effort. I'm sure it's not easy day to day to try to convince people as to the merits and sift through, I think, some of the pollution that comes out of the press, Washington, so on and so forth. But I want to praise you for your continued leadership and stewardship there because I think it's very important and I'm certainly a fan and I hope we can stay in touch and see you succeed in that role. 
Thanks so much, Maxime, for the kind words and yeah, the opportunity to chat. And yeah, the space is evolving and it needs bright minds, right? Innovation is an art and the science and the art is humans that are getting engaged in thoughtful, diverse, collaborative ways. So yes, I'm grateful and we're early days, but it's exciting. And yeah, I'm looking forward to staying in touch. Likewise. Take care. Thank you. This podcast is produced by Rado Venture Management LLC, RVM. RVM is not an investment advisor. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of any entities they represent, not investment advice.